0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Ross Gallagher. We've just finished recording our news show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including, will Goldman Sachs pull the plug on Marcus? And if they do, how do you define success? PayPal backs away from finding people $2,500 for misinformation, deciding that maybe that wasn't a great idea after all. And Damien Hirst burns artworks after collectors pick their nfts instead interestingly we don't know whether that was the artworks being destroyed or the artworks being completed so tune in for more of that we've got all of this and much more but first a few brief messages so please don't go anywhere
1: This year, 11FS are heading to Vegas for money 2020. Come and see us on Stand K 2310, where our Pulse team will be ready to chat all things UX and show you the very best user journeys from
0: around the world of FS. That's not all. Also, we'll be recording two live episodes of Fintech Insider, where you can come and watch and get a bit of a peek behind the mics. It all kicks off on the 23rd of October. See you in Vegas.
2: These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Welcome to episode 672 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my wonderful 11FS colleague, uh, Benjamin Ensor, our Director of Research here at 11FS. Benjamin, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm not sure I've been
3: described as wonderful before, but um, thank you. Uh, I'm good because we've got some exciting projects um, going on with some of our clients. So uh, lots of challenges going on. I think you're always
0: described as wonderful, Benjamin. Maybe just not when you're uh, within earshot. Um, right, and as always, we're joined by some very special guests. Uh, making a welcome return to FinTech Insider, we have Oliver Smith, the Managing Editor at AltFi. Oliver, welcome back to the show. I know we regularly talk about AltFi's stories, but maybe you can give us a little bit about uh, AltFi uh, and your news beat.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so AltFi has been covering the FinTech space since about 2013 um, and just increasing our coverage all the time. Personally, I'm managing editor, so I'm looking after our sort of strategic vision of, of what we're covering and where we're going, um, including increasingly into crypto. Um, so yeah, altfi.com for all the all the best fintech
0: news. Awesome, Oliver. Great to have you. And thanks for coming on and lending your expertise as we run through the, the stories from the week. Um, excellent. So it's also a welcome return to Fintech Insider for uh, Anita Ramaswamy, the senior reporter at TechCrunch. Anita, welcome back. Great to have you. What's uh, currently got you excited in the world of fintech?
5: Yeah, so I actually cover both fintech and crypto for TechCrunch. So the intersection of the two has been really interesting. And we've seen a couple of fintech companies like Betterment and Stash um, adding crypto to their platforms. So that's a trend that I'm following. And I I like to see when my two worlds collide.
0: Awesome. And a couple of stories then that should pique your interest in today's show as well. Um, Yeah. So excellent. With that, let's, uh, let's dive straight into the news. Our first story comes from Finnextra. It's about Goldman Sachs potentially being ready to pull the plug on Marcus. So Goldman Sachs is ready to ditch its ambitions to create a mass market digital bank as mounting losses at Marcus force the investment bank into a retreat. Goldman Sachs's consumer business is set to lose $1.2 billion this year, And this is despite the fact that the bank presented investors and analysts with a chart in early 2020, suggesting that the business would break even in 2022. According to Bloomberg, Marcus' chief David Solomon is reportedly ready to pull the plug on the business, redistributing its products to its wealth and asset management units. Um, Benjamin, do you mind if I come to you first on this one? I've been keen to get your thoughts on this uh, since I read it, so it may as well be on the podcast. It's
3: really hard building a new bank. And because we've seen a number of successful digital banks around the world, people overlook the huge number of unsuccessful ones or ones that have really struggled, right? Um, of course, what's successful? Right? Successful is getting to a growing, profitable business. Um, Marcus has been hugely impressive in many ways. It's won lots of customers and so on. But clearly, the cost of growing that business has been enormous. It's an open question about, What's Goldman Sachs actually said and what's it actually doing here? Is it scaling back its ambitions or dropping them entirely? My sense is this is more of a scaling back, uh, maybe pulling back from some of the more obviously you know, the harder areas, um, checking accounts, current accounts, and so on, some of the areas that don't make money. Um, is this the end for Marcus or is it just a pivot um, towards the more profitable parts of 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 the business. Um, and also does this mean that Goldman Sachs is pulling back from some of the transaction services that it's been doing, you know, the banking as a service side of the markers, you know, the, the, the partnership with Apple guard and so on, which has been hugely disruptive. So I'm keen to see more about what is Goldman Sachs actually doing here? Cause there's a, there's
0: an element of speculation in some of the stories. And of course I'm speculating myself. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean that there's, uh, some questions that are as 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 yet, I think, um, unanswered. Um, Anissa, what were your uh, what were your thoughts? What was your your reaction when you read this one?
5: Yeah, I think um, you know I'd echo the thought that was shared that was saying that it's basically a pivot for Marcus rather than a total shutdown. It seems like what they're planning on doing is focusing in on more like high net worth customers as well as institutional clients through some relationships that Goldman already has. I think it's interesting because Goldman is like the most Wall Street of Wall Street banks. It's not, you know, they, they tried to do this pivot with Marcus and appeal to the really everyday average consumer, but that's not where their strength has historically been. So it makes a lot of sense that they're taking a lot of these products and then saying, we're going to apply it to some of our existing partnerships and our existing customers. They have their ACO, uh, their workplace offering, and that's been pretty successful for them. And so I think this is really them just focusing and realizing, first of all, how expensive it is to build some products like checking accounts, realizing what the challenges are and deciding that they're going to pivot and focus in on what their core business and core areas of success have been in the past.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Oliver, how much of uh, this sort of retreat and this sort of pivot towards what's what's core in terms of their business do you think is... uh sort of related to the turbulence, the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of years. It wasn't lost on me in the uh, the the intro read that they presented this chart in early 2020, suggesting that the business would break even by 2022. Well, the world has completely flipped on its head since early 2020, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel, thinking from the UK point of view, I feel a bit sad because obviously Marcus over here, doesn't have the full suite, the full offering that it has in the US. And I'm really curious to see what position it's left in. Um, You know, at the moment, we only really have the online savings. We don't have the checking account. We don't have the investment side of things. So it's going to leave the UK in a really strange position. But I think you're right. I think, you know, the economy hasn't gone the way Mark's expected, especially with rates rising so much now. Suddenly, they've got to start dishing out real serious money in order to keep those lucrative high interest rates on the table. Um, and obviously, as well as, you know, internal costs, they're, they're sort of maybe starting to rethink that a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think actually putting that, that sort of consumer lens on it, you know, I think they had predicted that it would be a leader in retail banking, like it is on Wall Street, appreciate, obviously, that they haven't rolled out the sort of the checking account products, but they've still managed to attract 13 million customers to the unit and that's 13 million customers that potentially stand to be quite badly affected if they do sort of retreat. Um, Benjamin what are your what are your sort of thoughts on that?
3: I mean, 13 million customers is an impressive number, right? The United States is a big place, but even so, 13 million is, is impressive. So, what Goldman has achieved has been hugely impressive. And of course, it came into retail banking with really nothing much to lose apart from the money it spent building the business, right? But it had no existing brand. Uh, as Anita said, you know, it, it, it's a very strong Wall Street brand, but really wasn't a retail name particularly. So, I think, you know, what what Goldman has achieved has been impressive, but it's come at a great cost. I think the question is, what what's the ongoing value of that business for them, right? There was a logic to Goldman moving into retail as a source of funds, right? Obviously, Goldman can raise funds relatively easily, but as a source of relatively stable funds, you know, retail deposits is quite interesting for Goldman, I wonder if part of this is actually, you know, Goldman has so many ways to make money. You know, there are so many smart people within Goldman. They're looking at this and saying, hang on, guys, is resale banking really the most profitable way we can deploy our capital? And I think that's probably what's happened is that a number of other, you know, Goldman managers are saying, this is just, you know, this is not a good return on investment. We've got so many better ways of making money. Um, And they're going to pull back. And you know, they're not committed to the retail market necessarily. They've got no legacy in the no history in the in the retail market. It's I think it was just very transactional. This is an attractive way to get deposits, but it's not worth it going forward if they can't make a decent return on it.
0: I think that's a really, really interesting point. Um, and Anita, keen to get your thoughts. How much do you think this, you know, sort of Marcus, the sort of the retail play, has suffered? Or been sort of almost attacked internally by other sort of business units, other sort of revenue lines. Um, and maybe maybe sort of the the culture more broadly and sort of shifting to actually be able to play in that sort of retail space and do something different.
5: Yeah. I mean it's it's definitely been an interesting development culturally within Goldman. I mean, I know this that none of this is new. I wasn't particularly incredibly surprised when I heard that Goldman Sachs was going to be pulling away from the Marcus product because even as early as last year, I think it was last April around that time, there were reports of like burnout on the team, a really high rate of attrition on the Marcus team, specifically with their tech employees. And so it's not like this totally came out of nowhere. But I do also want to point to one bright spot, which Benjamin mentioned a little bit, which has been that their consumer deposits have been seen as pretty successful. Um, So savings accounts under Marcus, I was reading earlier today, hold over $10 billion dollars and basically, even the detractors of Marcus say that, okay, at least that part, we have to admit that that is pretty successful. So it's more of like the fintechy sort of Silicon Valley, more innovative products that it seems like they're pulling back from, that they really haven't been able to gain a lot of traction. And I, it totally goes back down to culture because if you're you're running a, a, the most Wall Street of Wall Street banks and that's where your expertise is, then it's really hard to make that pivot because it doesn't require just you know the costs and the investment, but it also requires a bit of a cultural shift in thinking.
0: Yeah, and 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 then picking up on that, Oliver, I think there's probably something here as well. I liked Anita summing it up as like the most Wall Street of Wall Street <laughs> banks. Have they just have they just failed to connect with consumers in a way that maybe? some of the more sort of emergent fintechs that we've seen actually establish themselves in the UK market maybe have. I mean, I think they've
4: they've definitely connected with a section of consumers, certainly the ones who are looking for those, you know, the best place to put their their sort of savings. Um, but I agree with with what you're saying is that they have maybe not built the same kind of brand. Um, I'm speaking about the UK here. When I compare it to Chase, which which is doing phenomenally well here is having a lot of traction across the board, um, besides some technical issues um, this this last week or so. Um, you know, it, it's becoming a really mainstream brand very, very quickly. Um, whereas Marcus, I think, was always ring-fenced as a sort of um, a savings brand for people who are looking for, for that, in the UK at least.
3: So I just wanted to come in with a point. I mean, retail banking is not the most profitable part of banking, right? And, you know, if Goldman Sachs as Anissa said, it's the most Wall Street of Wall Street banks. Um, retail banking is not where you go if you want to make a fortune, right? You don't get, you know, the people who caught got a brand new MBA saying, oh, I want to work for a retail bank because I'm going to make so much money. The whole culture of retail banking, retail banking is not vastly profitable and frankly, if you're making vast amounts of money from retail customers, you're probably ripping them off and, you know, you've probably got the regulators on your back. So, I think a big part of this is how much money was Goldman going to make in retail banking? This was a This was a tactical play um, for a bunch of reasons where it it made sense within their portfolio. I'm not convinced Rock Goldman was ever committed to becoming a retail banking business.
0: And Benjamin, you kind of started us out. So I'll give you the final word on this one as well by saying that it's really difficult, right, to build a a new bank, build a new digital bank. Um, Can a fintech exist within a big bank? What do you think?
3: So hard because the moment you start threatening the profits of the established businesses, um, mm. other executives start trying to shut it down. I don't think that was what was happening in, in Goldman um, necessarily. Um, I think it can be done, but I think it's 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 super hard. You know, Marcus was actually a, a case study of relative success, though. I think Anita's absolutely right. There'd been a lot of turnover in some of the technology teams. And, you know, culturally, that is challenging. Goldman has a very special culture. You know, read what you will into the word special. Um, So really tough to do, but I think it can be done. Okay, nice.
0: Yeah, nice to end that one on an optimistic note. Um, Okay, great. I am going to move us on now to our next story, which comes from The Register with the headline, PayPal decides fining people $2,500 for misinformation actually wasn't a great idea. Um, So PayPal has backed away from finding its own customers up to $2,500 for promoting whatever it determines is quote misinformation. The punishment showed up in its updated acceptable use policy, or its AUP, captured by the Internet Archives Wayback Machine on the 27th of September, and it was due to take effect on November 3rd. The revision was deleted by the online payments giant around uh, 2,100 hours GMT on the 8th of October. The business's current AUP was drafted on September 20th last year and remains in effect. The mention of, quote, misinformation piqued the interest of various U.S. Republicans who resent having provocative content moderated and have been trying to deny technology platforms moderation rights through federal and state legislation. So Anita maybe I'll come to you first on this one. Um it caused quite the quite the storm, quite the controversy, right?
5: Yeah, it did and it's interesting because it shows a lot of the trends that people have been seeing with social media platforms and the outrage over their content moderation policies now being applied to a fintech company and it's not really something that you you might have expected, but I've been talking to a lot of startups in fintech and it seems like there's been a lot of emphasis and a pivot almost to fintechs wanting to be social platforms and capitalize on some of those social interactions. We hear a lot about like building communities around certain products. And so it it kind of just goes to show that doing that is a lot easier said than done. And these fintechs are going to have to face a lot of the the same backlash that the big social platforms have in the past.
0: Yeah. Oliver, what were, what were your thoughts on this? Do you feel like they were sort of overstepping the mark a little bit? Were they right to backtrack?
4: Yeah, I mean I think they were they were right to backtrack. Um as, as Anita was saying, you know, if they were more of a social, you know, financial player, then you could understand this being introduced, maybe. I mean, I'd still have questions over whether penalties, fines, including in the Ts and Cs of a of a fintech, which, you know, I hold my hands up and say that I do not read all the T's and C's that I sign every day. So it feels like a bit of a sort of underhanded move in a way by sort of hiding it under there. Um, So I think, yeah, too soon, very, very much too soon, I'd say.
0: Yeah, it feels feels like a little bit like they did overstep the mark. I think, Benjamin, they've since come out and tried to clarify saying that it was more to do with incorrect information and that it's not trying to find people for misinformation. Maybe it was more to do with providing incorrect information at sign up and that sort of stuff. But um, it's definitely it's definitely had blowback and I, I reckon it's probably hurt the brand a little bit.
3: I'm gonna come in with a contrary view. I think the intent here was probably good. I think probably what PayPal, all PayPal was really trying to do here was prevent or, or Change its terms and conditions to make it clear that you can't lie to PayPal. You can't provide false, inaccurate, or misleading information. Right? Um, I think what they're trying to do is prevent fraud on their platform and make it easier to have a legal comeback on 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 people. Uh, you know, a very small proportion of people who are you know deliberately fraudulent and trying to use PayPal's platform to perpetrate or uh, enable certain types of fraud. I think they've then got caught up. In you know the American culture wars and the Republican um, discontent with social media platforms that they see as part of a big sort of conspiracy, and they've got caught out. I think their mistake was perhaps you know the two thousand five hundred dollar fine puts PayPal in a position of judge and jury, um, but I suspect the intent here was actually this was about trying to limit fraud, and they've got caught up in a political battle about Twitter and Donald Trump and a whole load of other stuff that's really actually not very much to do with what the vast majority of PayPal transactions are all to do with. So I think PayPal has been a bit unlucky here. I think it wasn't, I think it was outrageous for them to say, hey, we're going to fine you $2,500 because what gives PayPal the right to do that? But I think saying, hey, you can't lie to us without breaching our terms and conditions is actually is acceptable. So I think they were right to backtrack on the $2,500 I think the intent here probably wasn't what people have maybe thought it was.
0: Yeah, I think agree absolutely that they sort of maybe got caught up in a sort of um, of cultural backlash and there's all sorts of timing elements and everything there. I think, yes, there was blowback from um, sort of politicians, legislators, but then there was also um, sort of blowback from former PayPal executives. So I think there was um, uh, criticisms coming from sort of I suppose all corners, and I think at one point, like delete PayPal was uh, was 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 trending in various places. Anita, how much of an impact do you think this is going to have on PayPal longer term?
5: I don't know if it'll have a huge impact in terms of its financials and its actual business metrics, but in terms of public perception, it's it's totally right. The culture wars are a big thing. Here and I, I think you know. Last year, we saw Democrats in Congress actually in, in the U.S. were pressing PayPal to basically ban users who were spreading uh, COVID nineteen misinformation. So even though this may have to do more with fraud prevention, people see any sort of move that has to do with potential censorship from PayPal as this very contentious issue, and I think that's going to continue to be a big point in public discourse. And you also have to remember that, you know, the the whole PayPal mafia and former PayPal executives do have a lot of political alignment with, with the right in the US. And so in a way, there might even be some pressure on them that they feel they need to weigh in on this topic, even if it doesn't necessarily have to do with the, the ideology. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that apparently this policy of fining people $2,500 for violating the user agreement is not new. That's actually been in the PayPal uh, user agreement for a long time. Their comms person had clarified that, but it's actually just for, for things like uh, promoting violence or things that might potentially be illegal, you couldn't get fined. So I think the issue was this seemed like they were going to apply it more broadly, even if that wasn't actually going to be the case.
0: Yeah, and maybe equally comes back to the point about timing. I mean, it does feel... Sort of really highly charged at the moment. And we've seen we've, you know, this sort of lots of nods to the sort of post truth, maybe era that we're living in. Um, at the moment, I wonder, Oliver, what do you think in terms of like, do payments providers and I guess sort of like providers more generally have a, a responsibility, really a role in sort of combating this and really what's, uh, you know, what's sort of possible in terms of actually combating it? Um, in a sort of sensible and sustainable way.
4: Yeah, I mean, we did see this. I can't remember the exact story, but I remember there was, um, you know, people were urging PayPal to disconnect from certain businesses that were seen to be spreading misinformation a while back. Um, So certainly, you know, these financial players are the way that a lot of businesses and individuals tie into the financial ecosystem. So sure, they, they definitely need rules and they definitely need, you know terms of use. I think. I think as we've all kind of said, the fining is where it went over. You know, not just disconnecting someone necessarily, but actually sort of punishing them for that. Um, but I think you know all financial services players should have you know rules about what is acceptable to use their platforms for. Um, but it's the fining element that I think was a little bit was a little bit overstepping the mark.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And that does seem to be the bit that people have have taken issue with. So. Benjamin, just sort of picking back up on the point about how much has this sort of damaged PayPal, how much of that is more sort of immediate and short-term versus um, sort of longer-term. I mean, searches for the phrase delete PayPal exploded up by sort of 1,392%. That's a lot of percent according to Google Trends. Um, How much of this is sort of a storm in a teacup, like we said, sort of blowback, in a sort of combustible environment versus this having maybe a longer tail.
3: So, as I said, I think, you know, I think PayPal has got caught up in the sort of American political discourse. This story was reported in The Register, which is, one of my favourite IT publications. There's some brilliant journalists there. I think I'm just going to sum up with the subtitle of the of the article, which which you didn't read out. Uh, so PayPal decides finding people $2,500 for misinformation wasn't a great idea. Subtitle: It'll just go back to randomly shutting down accounts. Um, so <laughs> you know, PayPal has some other challenges. This is this hasn't helped. Um PayPal's got a lot of, you know, a lot of competitors. You know, PayPal was brilliant when it came out 20 years ago. There's a lot of other companies offering comparable services. So PayPal didn't need this.
0: No, completely agree. Completely agree. And, and and you know, it detracts from, you know, that I agree that they were a, a super company mm-hmm. when they came out 20 years ago and that it's been a bit of a bumpy ride. Um, I, were, and it's, were you, we sort of touched on this, this briefly before. Were you surprised to see, you know, the sort of PayPal mafia former executives um, criticizing the company, how much of an impact do you think that has? Or like you said, do you think, is 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 this sort of par for the course in terms of like those political alignments that you mentioned?
5: I think they were predictable views. I wasn't totally surprised to see that they had spoken out uh, about this, especially given who was actually outraged in the first place. And I know that PayPal's stock dipped a little bit, I believe, right after all of this started coming out, but I don't think it's going to have a material long-term impact. Like we, we all already know what the viewpoints are of some of these members of the PayPal mafia, you know, that didn't come as a surprise. I think the issue is just that not everyone has the same definition of what constitutes misinformation. And so, you know, it's it's a really tough thing for PayPal to have to navigate. And no matter what they do, even if this is a very small area of their business and it's very – it has a limited impact – it's going to be magnified in the public discourse. Like, I think that there's going to be a magnifying glass on every single move that they make in terms of content moderation. And that's going to apply not just to PayPal, but to other fintechs as, as well. So, I don't think it's going to hurt them materially in the long run. But I do think that, you know, fintech and the, the business world is continuing to be pulled in this direction that's very ideological and political. And that's been happening in the US for quite some time now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think that misinformation debate is just going to run and run. I know um, Alex Jones, as an example, um, a, a, a purveyor of fake news, was cut from PayPal in 2018. We've seen him recently get a really, really hefty fine for his views. Vast, the, the, vast. Yeah, fine, yeah, it was isn't it? enormous. I've never seen yeah. um, anything like it. But equally, I think businesses and and sort of personalities are going to continue to get sort of pulled into this. Uh, and, and and continue to sort of get this type of blowback sort of whether they like it or not because it does just seem to be such a, um, a sort of melting pot at the minute. Okay, great. Um, so we're just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back shortly.
2: The rise of data-driven financial services has opened up new ways for banks and lenders to better connect with their customers and offer exceptional user experiences. But to take advantage of these opportunities, we need to break away from traditional constraints. A new report from Tink shows how open banking can pave the way for faster and more responsible lending practices that are robust on risk and financially inclusive. To find out how Tink can help you transform lending, read the full report at tink.com forward slash 11FS.
0: Okay, welcome back to the show. Let's get into our next story. So this story comes from Protocol. Um, A firm is working on credit card-like bonus points for its payment product. So a firm is testing a bonus rewards program for its Buy Now, Pay Later product, addressing a major gap between the short-term payment plans and conventional credit cards. CEO Max Levchin first teased the idea in the company's fourth quarter earnings call in August. Companies in the space began launching card products in an attempt to be customers' first choice at checkout, whether that's online or in person. A firm's Card Debit Plus launched in 2021 and allows customers to split purchases over $100 into installment payments. Now the company is justifying the Plus and the Debit Plus by adding more bonus features. The company's beta rewards structure will give customers one point for every dollar paid, although that may change as they continue to test the features. So, Oliver, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you first on this one. Uh, what were your thoughts when you uh, when you heard about this?
4: Yeah, it's, I, it's interesting. I mean, Buy Now, Pay Later is obviously in a very tricky spot at the moment. Um, consumers are reining in their spending. Retailers are, you know, struggling with with overheads going up. So everyone's looking um, to save money somewhere. Offering this rewards program is obviously a way of trying to tie their users into the service. Now, we've seen this with Klarna as well. You know, Klarna has its own rewards program, really trying to ingrain Buy Now, Pay Later in consumer habits. Um, Will it be successful? I'm not sure. I don't know whether consumers, uh, speaking in the UK and Europe at least, I don't know whether Buy Now, Pay Later is as close to their, you know, if the brand has that kind of brand appeal that I think they want it to have. They want people to go on the Klarna app to do their shopping, to get the rewards. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but certainly these kinds of programs are the way of getting people more ingrained with Buy Now, Pay Later. So, It'll be interesting to see if it if it plays out, um, but yeah, I think I think wait and see is is my judgment at the moment.
0: Yeah, I agree, Benjamin. I, I don't know about you. I mean, this this kind of feels wrong to me. Maybe it's the the environment that we're in with the cost of living crisis, but any sort of in, incentives at the moment encouraging people to spend on on any type of of, of credit product maybe doesn't feel in the consumer's best interest. I mean, I think there's two ways to look at it,
3: right? One way is to look at it and think in terms of, okay, if we look at the market context, particularly the market context of the United States where you have very high interchange fees and you have very high rewards, customers expect rewards on their spending, right? Because that's normal. That's what people have grown up with. That's what people are used to. Therefore, if you are a firm and you are trying to get people to... um, become more loyal to your payment system uh, uh, you probably do need to add rewards because that's what Americans in particular expect with their spending on the other hand yes i you know i see what you're saying you know actually if you think about this as a sort of regulator or a politician or a, or even a merchant is it is it great to see people being encouraged to to spend and spend on things they don't need um in a, do people really spend extra just to get their rewards, or is this really about people choosing between a variety of different payment options? I think the real question is, yeah. So a firm making a reasonable play here to try and win customers compared with other payment systems. You're asking the question, Ross. Are does this actually then encourage people to take on more debt rather than put things onto debit cards? Um, there are rewards on debit cards in the states. Obviously, those are not as attractive. Um, past me, I think this is going to be, this is a really tough thing to do. It's really hard to build really good bonus reward programs that are actually relevant to people. Um, How do you make sure that the offers you're offering actually so relevant to customers that they choose you rather than another payment system? I think this is going to be a really tough thing to pull off unless they've lined up some really strong partners, because it's so hard building strong rewards programs that truly differentiate against credit card providers that have been doing this for decades.
0: Yeah, and that raises another interesting point for me, right? Because I think a lot of these um, buy now, pay later companies have gone to great lengths almost to sort of distinguish or differentiate themselves from credit card companies. But then here they are sort of learning from the, the old practices of, of credit card companies and, and maybe aligning even that a little bit more closely. Anita, what were, you, what were your thoughts when you saw this one?
5: I think that there's an inherent tension for the buy now, pay later companies between growing and underwriting in a tight way. So this is really just a play for growth. It's another ploy to get more customers onto the platform, more customers using these sorts of products. But And a lot of these companies have to do that, right? That's the only way that they're going to continue to grow. Many BNPLs are venture-backed. Like This isn't a new thing that a firm is necessarily doing. Afterpay also has a program that rewards users for paying, making payments on time, I believe Klarna also has some sort of similar rewards program for spending with their BNPL. So it's not something entirely new in this space. And I think that BNPL products are really consumer friendly compared to credit cards. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing to encourage people to take on debt, um, especially when the underwriting is so loose. But at the same time, if you look at it from the consumer perspective, you know, this gives a little bit of flexibility what i was reading about the debit plus card specifically with the firm is that you can use it as a regular debit card so theoretically you can get this you don't have to necessarily use the bnpl and pay in installments you could just pay in one lump sum and still accrue rewards for your dollars spent and so that essentially turns it into a debit card with with a pretty attractive rewards and perks program and i think that sounds good for the consumers but but the question for the companies is like can they keep their underwriting tight enough especially when there's a potential of a recession on the horizon, and consumer spending is being reined in. Like, are they going to end up with a ton of bad debts, and is that going to be a long term problem for them? That's that's a very fine line that companies like a firm are going to have to walk.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Oliver. Keen for your thoughts on uh, on that one because I think Anita's right. As as this sort of rolls on and, and and spending tightens, it could cause a problem, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, y- you mentioned credit cards, and I, what I think is really interesting as well is. Buy now, pay later providers becoming more like credit cards with rewards and and the sort of lifestyle stuff that you'd expect. But also, I mean, we're seeing uh, credit cards, you know, challenger credit cards coming out that are trying to be more like buy now, pay later with splitting options, um, trying to emulate that sort of pay later experience. So I think we're all heading towards this, this perfect world where... Pay later, you know, the consumers love this split in three kind of mindset because it gives them fixed certainty. Uh, credit card providers are trying to do that. Buy now, pay later is trying to do that. Rewards, I'm sure, will be part of that solution. But I but I agree, the sort of market uncertainty at the moment with the cost of living crisis means that this isn't a great time to be probably in either one of those markets.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe going back to my earlier sort of point, um, Anissa, you mentioned the example of the... Um, After pay, but actually they link the rewards to sort of what might be interpreted as more positive behaviors around sort of paying the repayment yeah which which you know i think over time maybe plays into more of like a financial well-being piece where you're actually sort of incentivizing customers to like pay on time which helps them build their credit score and all of that sort of stuff and actually that to me feels like a a sensible differentiator now whether or not we feel that would resonate with consumers might be a different story. Um, But it's certainly an interesting example.
5: Yeah, I, I guess it depends too on what sorts of customers actually end up going for this. I think one interesting trend with the BNPL space is the differences in different regional markets. You know, all of these BNPL providers are fighting for U.S. market share specifically. But in a lot of other countries, like debt is stigmatized to a much greater degree than it is in the U.S. So acquiring customers there is just that much more difficult. Um, Whereas in the US, you know, BNPLs, at least in their current state, and this could change with upcoming regulation and everything, but in their current state, they are a lot more lax in terms of their underwriting standards and in terms of the consequences for for those who don't repay. So it's kind of interesting to see the approach that Afterpay is taking of doing like positive affirmation to try to encourage (laughs) repayment versus the sort of negative like charging late fees. I don't know if Afterpay charges late fees or not actually, but I know that a firm specifically does not do that. Um, and they don't report a, a lot of the BNPLs also don't report to the credit agencies or anything like that. So, yeah, I do think there's a lot of credit card companies getting into the BNPL space and doing that, like Oliver mentioned. At the same time, I think right now, BNPLs are still a more attractive option for consumers because if you can take out that same debt without getting reported to the credit agencies without having your credit score dinged, I mean that that seems like a seems like a win for the customer. Um, but, in, in a systemic sense and in a long term sense it's it's a lot more risky.
0: Yeah, completely agree and I think it's interesting to call out the the sort of regional differences and I think also um, the the generational differences, right We know that sort of gen gen z and and, and sort of younger millennials tend to swear off credit cards where possible. Benjamin, final word to you on this one. Do you think with that in mind that um BMPL products could actually in time overtake credit cards? The credit card has been an amazing product.
3: Um, clearly, the plastic card element of that goes away, right? Essentially, a credit card is a revolving credit line. Um, buy now, pay later is not quite yet a revolving credit line, but it's sort of going that way. So I, I think we're going to see more merger between the two. I mean, Anita makes an interesting point about um, which ones get referred to the credit agencies and which don't. Um, but at some point, you've got to, the, the credit agencies have got to catch up with that. I think the regulations will catch up with buy now, pay later. I think this all becomes one category of revolving credit. I think the card gradually goes away. The card's a very useful form factor. Some people like it, but obviously increasingly people just use their mobile phone. So I think the card itself goes away and it then becomes a question of what rails is this payment running over and who is funding the lending, right? Is it the the credit card issue at the bank or whatever that is funding the loan? Is it a merchant funding a loan? Whose incentive is it to encourage this customer um, to to spend more and who wants to take the risk on that loan? And as Anita said, it's super easy lending the money. It's the getting it back that's the hard bit. And let's see how that pays out over the next
0: couple of years. Yeah, interesting. Another one that's just going to run and run. Um, Okay, I'm now going to move us on to our next story, which comes from Quartz, um, how India's proposed digital rupee would be different from cryptocurrency. So the RBI, that's the Reserve Bank of India, is set to pilot a digital currency. The RBI has been working in a phased manner towards a digital currency's launch, although there is no deadline. In a concept note, the bank wrote the e rupee or digital rupee will provide an additional option to the currently available forms of money. It is substantially not different from banknotes, but being digital, it is likely to be easier, faster and cheaper. The RBI believes that the digital rupee system will bolster India's digital economy, enhance financial inclusion and make the monetary and payment systems more efficient. Now, for a little more on the crypto perspective on CBDCs, we reached out to Mauricio Magaldi, who is the co-host of our sister show, Blockchain Insider.
1: CBDCs are a way for central banks to participate in the blockchain economy. It does not necessarily translate that the population will do that because crypto in general is permissionless. All you need is an internet connection and a computer and you can play with the crypto economy. Whereas with CBDCs, you're still going to be going through something that is, if not directly, it resembles traditional finance. And Right now, what people are looking for are alternatives to traditional finance that solve their problems in the way that traditional finance cannot. From everything we're seeing with CBDCs in general, they're much more a wholesale play than a retail play, although there are retail CBDCs, but the implementation itself is far from, you know, getting done. While with stablecoins and crypto, we're running for 13 years now. So, I think that's, that's where CBDCs are coming into play and that's the uphill battle that central banks will have to actually get CBDCs to get adopted, like, you know, for the general population. Because the the battle is like crypto found PMF, CBDCs are still like 90% of the central banks are doing CBDC projects. That's exactly what they are. They're CBDC projects.
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting point, isn't it, that Mauricio makes. We're seeing lots of experimentation in this space, um, still little concrete by way of sort of clear direction. Um, Benjamin, I'll come to you first on this one. What did you uh, What did you think of it?
3: I, I, th- I mean, India's had a, a very interesting recent history of um, trying to well, firstly, building a fantastic te- tech stack that has has hugely advanced the Indian economy, but also trying to shift from cash, you know, notes and coins into uh electronic transactions um i think partly it's 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 a move driven by the government to ensure it's improving its tax collection and so on obviously getting things out of the sort of um the the black economy and you're getting um being able to track transactions better um I think Maurizio is right in a lot of what he's saying. Um, obviously, I think he's right in a lot of what he's saying. Uh, but spe- specifically, I think this is—you know—this is about fiat currency. This is about can can the Reserve Bank of India create some more efficient ways for. Indians to or Indian businesses to move money around. There's a huge question in my mind about okay, how do you make this work at a retail level? Right, how do you put in place the infrastructure that enables people to transfer digital currency between each other? You know, we, as, as, as Mauricio said, the crypto industry has been working on that. You know, for well over a decade. It's hard. Um, so there's a huge amount of infrastructure that needs to be put in place before this becomes anything like mainstream. But I think this is inevitable. I think we are going to see more and more governments and and central banks promoting and testing central bank digital currencies because to some extent they don't really want people shifting their money into um, cryptocurrencies that are not under their control. So I think we will see much more of this from many other central banks. And at some point we will start seeing more and more governments saying, hang on, we don't want our citizens moving their money out of our currencies into other currencies because governments have always
0: done that. And there's all sorts of issues involved in that from their perspective, including sort of losing control or losing impact over monetary policy, for example. So, you know, we're seeing that obviously there's 10 countries now that fully launched digital currency, 105 countries representing over 95% of global GDP are exploring a CBDC. Anita, do you think CBDCs are now inevitable? And is there enough of a sort of value proposition and enough of a use case to sort of justify that?
5: I wouldn't say they're inevitable per se. I think, you know, technological innovation that's driven by the government in most countries takes a long time. It's a really slow process. And India is still figuring out a lot of the details of how they're even going to set up this system. You know, there's still debate over things like, should the e rupee actually earn interest or not earn interest? And what are some of the incentives around that? So there's, there's a long road ahead, but I think there's a maybe... A misconception that's easy to have when you're first looking into this topic of because a government is launching a CBDC, then that might signal that they're actually favorable towards crypto. And I think that it's exactly the opposite. You know, the Indian government has been very, very against crypto. Um, The RBI itself has said that banning crypto outright, and I'm talking about private cryptocurrencies as opposed to CBDCs, the RBI said would be best for India. Um, The Indian government has imposed really stiff taxes on crypto as well. And the RBI uh, basically made this statement saying that crypto is specifically designed to bypass intermediation from government. When I think about what the benefits are for crypto users, and I'm very much simplifying this, there's probably a bunch of other things I'm missing, but at a really high level, you have two major benefits. You have efficiency of payments and you have this sort of benefit of decentralization and in some ways, yeah, being able to bypass intermediation. And so that first benefit, I think, is what these CBDCs are really trying to capture. And they're saying, look, for all the people who want to use crypto because they want faster payments, they want more efficient transactions, we're going to give you an option. But for that second group of people who want to use private cryptocurrencies to, you know, achieve some sort of decentralization, they don't want the government to have control over their money. Um, They're sort of saying, well, you're out of luck. And so I think countries that are actually launching CBDCs are, in a way, trying to fight the inevitable rise of people wanting to transact in crypto.
0: Yeah. And I think what's interesting as well is, you know, Benjamin mentioned everything that's happening in, in India at the moment at a sort of like national infrastructure level to sort of move payments from sort of cash to digital. But actually cash is a, a real proponent of financial inclusion, right? Like people who can't access those um digital alternatives, actually cash is the only option that they have, right? So rolling out a CBDC that can sort of replicate some of those characteristics of cash, I think, you know, goes probably more to the the, the point around financial inclusion and making sure that those people, if cash is accepted in less places, um, they actually have an alternative. But um, I think there are also, there exists still some some skepticism around CBDC's generally I'm thinking things around like privacy and all of that sort of stuff. Oliver, what are your, your sort of thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I, I mean I think my my personal skepticism about the CBDC sort of project is it's it's often done, it takes many, many years. It's done, you know, from a policy level behind the scenes, and we have to wait a very long time before it reaches market and we actually see the utility and the value and whether that exists or not, and who finds the utility and the value. Um, And that's, that's a bit of a challenging, you know, product development, um, when you don't really get the end customer to use the product until quite near the end. Um, also the, the development, you know, we're in the sort of crypto winter at the moment. So attention development is shifting away. Things are cooling down in that space. Um, so I think, I think it'll be quite a while. You know, we need another, peak we need more interest more focus to get these projects moving um, and then finally we'll we'll get to see if there's utility if there's value for businesses and consumers once they eventually do launch
0: yeah and and i guess picking up on that sort of utility in a in a sort of retail setting where it's actually being used as a sort of day-to-day currency for example rather than purely wholesale which is probably where we've seen most activity to date i mean benjamin are you optimistic that CBDCs can can sort of actually play that role of being a, a day-to-day currency? And, and maybe what impact might that have on some of the, the private cryptocurrencies and other alternative digital assets that we see out in the market today? If, if this wasn't India...
3: <laughs> Um, I think some of the skepticism would would be justified. But if you look at what India has achieved in the past decade with the universal payments interface, with Adha and so on, creating vast amounts of financial inclusion. You know, India has been a huge success story in many respects in terms of creating central technologies and platforms and so on that are bringing in vast numbers of people who were previously excluded from or, or had difficulty accessing the financial system. So, you know, if any country can pull it off, it could be India. China is obviously working, has been working incredibly hard similarly on CDBCs. I think there's something like 140 million people in China who have opened um, a, a sort of uh, wallet, a sort of digital yen wallet. You know, the, let's not be too skeptical here. These are these are vast economies with a lot of capability Um they could yet pull this off. And of course, they've got the law on their side. You know, Anita, I think you're fundamentally right. These projects are really about an attack on or a way of trying to control private cryptocurrencies because countries, governments don't want to see their citizens moving money out. And we've seen, you know, some of the turbulence in the past few years, people in in unstable economies trying to shift their money into private crypto assets. And, you know, quite rightly, and I completely understand why I want to do that. I think these governments are going to have success here. I think, I, I take Oliver's point on, yeah, it's going to be hard, but I, I, think, I think they will succeed. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for the world is a different question. Um, but I'm, I suppose, optimistic
0: that these things will happen. All right, excellent. Um, for more conversation on CBDCs and insights from Mauricio, do check out our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now for the section of the show we're calling Big Click Energy, a quick-fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Uh, Benjamin, do you want to get us started?
3: Yes, so the first story comes from Disrupt Africa, and this is that Egypt's Algebra Ventures has completed the first close of $100 million for its second fund. Egypt's leading venture capital firm has finalized a $100 million dollar. Um, close of its second Egypt-dedicated fund, exceeding its $90 million target. Formed in 2016, Algebra Ventures provides startups with multi-stage capital, assisting with strategy and operations, as well as helping build teams. Algebra plans to invest $15 million in startups by the end of 2022, this year, and is expecting to make the final close by the end of the first quarter of 2023. It has already invested in four startups as part of its second fund, including online used car retailer cylinder. Um, love it. M- economies like Egypt have so many underserved needs, so many customers who are struggling. There's such opportunity still for um, new digital ventures to improve the lives of people. Um, fantastic. I love seeing venture capital going into um, markets where people can really benefit from some, sometimes quite simple improvements. Um, there's a lot of opportunities still. And Egypt, of course, is uh, the largest economy, largest market in the Middle East and one of the largest
0: in Africa. Fantastic. Super, thanks, Benjamin. Um, this next story comes from the Evening Standard. Martin Lewis hits out a Deliveroo for buy now, pay later scheme. So UK financial expert Martin Lewis has criticized Deliveroo for teaming up with Klarna, allowing customers to pay for their takeaway in installments. The partnership has faced a backlash for encouraging people to use a buy now, pay later scheme to pay for food amid the cost of living crisis. The money-saving expert founder said, Dear Deliveroo, do you really need to pump debt as a way to pay for your takeaways? He added, borrowing should only be if needed, all caps, for planned one-off budgeted purchase, not a cheeky nanos." The Klarna payment option allows people to order a takeaway on Deliveroo, and pay for it either in full within 30 days or in three installments over 60 days. The latter option is for orders over 30 pounds or more. So much like our uh, previous story, I think some of the optics obviously here aren't good, especially in the, the context of a cost of living crisis. I think there probably is a wider issue here just in terms of the country's reliance on credit for sort of day-to-day spending, I think. One in five use credit cards to, use, to, to buy takeaways. So I suppose really what's the difference? But I think as ever, you know, Martin Lewis offering a timely reminder and some sound financial advice. We actually put out a question on our social channels asking, should fast food delivery services accept buy now, pay later? Um, probably won't surprise you. That the results were re- resounding. 14% said yes, while 86% said no.
3: Okay, next up is a story from fintech futures. This is that digital receipts startup flux is closing down. Uh, The UK digital receipts platform flux has announced that it is ceasing operations as of Friday, the 14th of October. In a statement on its website, the UK based fintech wrote, you'll no longer be able to receive digital receipts or cashback offers when you shop at flux retailers. The team added, we're proud of what our team has achieved and the incredible network of retailers, banks, and consumers that we have built over the past five years. Flux had recently announced that more than a million customers in the UK were using its services. And in 2021, it struck a deal with Barclays, which became the first UK high street bank to embrace digital receipts. Um, This is a really sad story. Uh, I remember the the deal with Barclays and think, fantastic, you know, good for Flux, um, making progress. This is a tough thing to do. Um... It's really tough building, as I was talking about in the previous story, it's really tough building networks of merchants and building an ecosystem that really gives, creates value for the customers. Receipts isn't really enough. It's like, yeah, it's quite nice to have a digital receipt. Do I really care? Um, so just hard finding product market fit doesn't really address a really sharp pain for customers. But I'm really sad because um, a good team, and uh, they'd had some success and, you know, always sad to hear about people sort of losing their jobs and moving on. Um, But I wish all the great people at Flux the best in finding new roles in fintech, which I'm sure they will.
0: Yeah, completely agree. It's really sad. All the reaction I saw has been sort of like just disappointment for what could have been. I think people feel like this should be a thing. Um, And yeah, like you said, Benjamin, a really hard thing to actually deliver. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week. This is the and finally segment, where we round up one of the uh, sillier or more lighthearted stories of the week. So this week's story comes from Reuters. Uh, Damien Hurst burns artworks after collectors pick their NFTs instead. So artist Damien Hurst started burning hundreds of his artworks on Tuesday after collectors chose non-fungible tokens or NFTs instead. Hearst, who found fame amid the 1990s young British artist scene, launched his first NFT collection, The Currency, 10,000 NFTs corresponding to 10,000 original artworks depicting colorful spots in July 2021. Collectors had to choose between keeping the NFT, which reportedly sold for $2,000, or swapping it for the physical artwork. Some 5,149 picked the artworks, while 4,851 opted for the NFTs, according to London's Newport Street Gallery. Live streaming the event, the Turner Prize winner used tongs to deposit individual pieces stacked in piles into fireplaces in the gallery as onlookers watched. Um, Oliver, I'll I'll come to you first on this one. What, uh, What do you think? Oh, I mean,
4: I'm just I can't believe everyone chose the NFTs. I, I thought everyone knew that the prices were tanking at the moment. Um, I mean, personally, I would, I would take the artwork any day of the week. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it is in itself a work of art. So um, he did he did very well getting lots of headlines from it.
0: Yeah, what was interesting. So Anita, I think he said that this wasn't the artworks actually being destroyed, but it was then being completed.
5: Oh wow, that's uh, that's a claim. Um, no, I mean I think it's interesting that he burned them because you don't necessarily need to do that. I think with a lot of products, you know, they'll give you both the artwork itself or the product itself and the NFT. It's like a deed of ownership. I'm with Oliver. I totally would have picked the artwork as well. Um, it, it's kind of strange to me that it's a trade off or a choice between having the deed of ownership versus the artwork itself.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting one. So apparently he said, I'm completing the transformation of these physical artworks into NFTs by burning the physical versions. Um, Benjamin, is that your understanding around how NFTs work? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, firstly, I'm totally torn on Damien Hirst's artwork because I hate his formaldehyde animals. And if that had been the choice, happily burn them, put those things out of their misery, <laughs> destroy them forever. But actually, some of his other work I actually really quite like. And therefore, like, why would you have it only as an NFT? I'd love to you know, display it. It seems a shame to um,
0: destroy it. Sorry, I've lost your question. What was your question to me, Ross? Well, I, 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 I'm just interested in his slant on them being sort of completed the physical the, the the transformation being completed rather than them being destroyed he's
3: a brilliant marketer this is all about marketing he's a brilliant marketer you know well done him i mean i think modern artists you have to be a fantastic marketer to stand out um he's a brilliant marketer i don't think he cares it's about creating a great story that attracts attention to him and his work and you know that's how he makes a living and he's been very very successful so you know well done him um is our artwork complete? Who knows?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible in terms of the publication. Oliver, I'm going to come back to you for the last word on this because you said you would have definitely taken the artwork over the NFT. Is there any item that you'd rather own the NFT than the real thing?
4: Oh, I guess, you know, some of some works of art are a little bit too big to, to have in the, I'm thinking of his, his balloon dogs, you know, maybe a bit too big for the house. So, so send me the NFT of Damien Hirst's balloon dog any day.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, look, let's uh, let's leave it there. I think that wraps up this week's news show. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. Guys, where can people find out a bit more um, about you? Anita, let's let's start with you.
5: Yeah, you can find me hosting TechCrunch's crypto podcast called Chain Reaction. And you can also find me on Twitter at Anita Ramaswamy.
0: Excellent. Oliver, how about you? Yeah, you can
4: find our coverage on altfi.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Oliversmitheu.
0: Excellent. Benjamin, how about you?
3: Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Benjamin Enso, or you can find out more about us at 11 com.
0: Excellent. And as for me, you can find me at RossGallagher07 on Twitter. And thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11FS.com.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Goodbye.